What do the most successful growing businesses have in common? They're working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. I'm trying to convince people to unlearn something they've been doing for generations, which is you go into a mahogany-clad office and you talk to someone in a suit and tie and you give them all of your information and you trust them to help you through this. And I'm saying, you don't need any of that. You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Legorio chafkin Today's episode, The Black Licorice of Company Cultures. Welcome to the third episode of our short series on companies that made the Inc. 5000 list of fastest-growing businesses in America. This week, I'm speaking with Zhao Wang, the co-founder and CEO of Boundless Immigration. It's a Seattle-based tech company that helps people complete applications for U.S. citizenship online. Wang's dream is to give immigrants all the information and services they need in an easily digestible fashion and also to advise the government on immigration reform in the future. To grow an astounding 1,131% over the past three years, though, took a lot of adaptation and flexibility. And Wang realizes his company culture isn't for everyone. But his company is doing important and rewarding work, having helped more than 70,000 people file their immigration paperwork and having done so with a greater than 99% success rate. But before founding his company, Zhao was an immigrant himself and watched his parents struggle with their own immigration. I uh, came over when I was relatively young from China. And growing up, uh, I was watching my parents struggle through their immigration journey, anywhere from paying, you know, almost five months of rent money for immigration attorneys just because we didn't know what we were doing, to being taken advantage by employers because of our immigration status. So while our family gave up everything to come here to America and, and, and strongly believe in this concept of the American dream, to actually successfully thrive in this country uh, was, was remarkably challenging. Yeah. Were your parents um, entrepreneurs themselves? No, they uh, they came here to study. Uh, they were part of the Cultural Revolution in China as the communist government closed down all the schools. And so it was always their dream to actually go to school, right? Which is something that I have gotten to, to take in for granted for my whole life. Uh, and so they, were, they had an opportunity to come and study abroad. Uh, and it was like one of these once-in-a-lifetime uh, chances. And so they took it. Yeah, that's amazing. So you yourself, you say you took that for granted. You had a fantastic education at Stanford, at Harvard Business School. Did you intend to start a company? I know you went into tech. You worked at Amazon Go and Jawbone, which I want to ask you more about. Was it your intention to start something or did you were you just interested in product management and development? I've always been interested in solving problems uh, and, and looking at it in new ways. I did this in, in the public sector when I was at the New York City Department of Education and wanted to just rethink how schools were built and launched and, and was able to raise private dollars to start new programs to run public schools in a different way to help disadvantaged families more. 
And then obviously you mentioned I was at Amazon to rethink what physical shopping is and how we can use technology to take out a part of shopping experience that adds no value to people, which is standing in line, the waiting to give someone your money. So I've always been passionate about like, like solving interesting problems or tackling situations that have been going the same way for generations and looking at it in a different way. But for me, to, to actually start a company, um, I have no illusions about how hard it's going to be. And uh, the reality is actually it's even harder than what you think uh, beforehand. <laughs> uh, but it had to be something that if I look back and it truly worked, I needed to be proud of it. And then it needed to be worthwhile because I knew that I would be giving up all of these other aspects of my life. And so it was always in the back of my mind that I was going to start something at some point. The question was really around, like, was there ever going to be a problem so emotionally and viscerally affecting me that it, it was worth it uh, to, to tackle? Yeah. And so when did the idea of immigration kind of get back under your nose and in your face? It's probably around late 2016. As an immigrant, and you're around other immigrants all the time, it starts being just status quo, right? Everyone has a terrible experience, and you kind of compete with each other on who had the you know, worst <laughs> journey last time they crossed the border, and you maybe buy the, the person with the ridiculous story a drink, right? And it's just like this is a natural part of our lives. And so it wasn't until late 2016 that I actually asked the question of, like, why is immigration so hard for the first time? Before, it's just assumed it's hard. And then once you ask the question, why, then you start peeling away this layer, and this onion, right? You can talk to attorneys, you talk to families, you talk to government officials, you look at the policy and you're like, wow, this is yet another system that has been fundamentally broken for families for literally generations. The last time that meaningful immigration reform was passed was in the 80s, and before that, it was in the you know 60s. And so it has been so many years that like people have suffered through the same way. And I was still at the Amazon at the time, and I was spending my nights and weekends thinking about it. And at some point, you get to a mental clarity that like you can't not solve this problem. Yeah. And I think that's the moment where you're like, wow, there's nothing else that I would want to do, or there's nothing else that I'm thinking about other than how do I make this better for millions of people. What did you sort of see as the solution to that? How did you solve for it? First of all, it's not a simple solution. And I think that at its core, I discover that immigration is a unique situation where it can determine its one set of paperwork that can basically determine the rest of your life, right? Your rest of your family's life, where you can live, where you can work. Um, and that makes it immensely high stakes. And when you have something that's missing mistakes, what you need is information and you need advice and you need help and you need to feel confident that like, you know, when I put this 400 page package into the mail, that my life is going to play, play out the way that I'm hoping it would. And so in that world, there's only two groups of people that I found that, that know what's going on with immigration. You have the federal government, which for generations has been unable to make it simpler and is challenged at explaining what to do in a, in a good way. And then you have immigration attorneys that are wonderfully talented people, but are also financially incentivized to make sure that no one knows what's going on, like how to do it 
properly. And so in this world where like there's these two large groups of people with information, then you have millions of families that, that are faced with a really tragic decision. Either you spend thousands of dollars that you may or may not have on the advice from attorneys, or you try to go on your own and trust that you can somehow decipher this like exceptionally high stakes process of which when I talk to members of the government, they say like 40% of people uh, make mistakes when they go about it without help. Right. And so there's no winning for anyone in this situation. And so that's where it's like, wait, this is exactly what technology and data is meant to do. It's meant to give access and democratize access to this level of information to everyone to give all families the confidence that they know what they're eligible for, know how to do it, and and you know, think that they're going to be successful. Yeah, it's incredible that you have something like a 99% success rate on your applications for multiple categories of immigration documents. I mean, was that something that you set as a goal at the beginning? And how did you attain that? Absolutely. I'm trying to convince people to unlearn something they've been doing for generations, which is you go into a mahogany-clad office and you talk to someone in a suit and tie and you give them all of your information and you trust them to help you through this. And I'm saying, you don't need any of that. You can go to our website, right? You don't need to ever talk to anyone. You can work on things on your own time. You have personalized and guided technology to help you through this journey and you're trusting that we're going to do it. And the only way that you're going to trust if we can do it is if you know that, like, actually, we're going to be more successful than any other option. So the optimization was always you had to start with this has to work. And when we've done the latest other, we're actually at 99.97 now. So we've added two more significant digits to this where if you use us, you're going to be successful. And so that's like where it starts where it has to work. Yeah. No. Well, I mean, there's also, I would assume that you're just not going to submit an application if the person doesn't qualify or doesn't meet those standards. I mean, that's where data can come in, right? You can know who is actually eligible. Yeah. Uh, and we have a we have a pretty robust like sort of eligibility flow. And we, you know, have a, a, a just because we're, we're technology driven doesn't mean uh, that, that we don't have people involved. And we have uh, a large team of very experienced immigration guides and application um, you know, support that like help people understand you know, what does a long-form birth certificate mean versus a short-form, and like what, uh, what do you need depending on which country you're from to be able to qualify. You have processed some 70,000 successful applications at this point, and you grew so fast over the past three years that you landed on the Inc. 5000 list of fastest-growing companies. Now, with that fast growth often comes strain and stress. Um, what's been the biggest challenge of the last three years? <laughs> <laughs> um, when when I, I'm laughing just because yeah it, in um, the immigration space I don't think there's ever a year that gone by without something um, you know uh, exogenous that completely upends our world. I mean, if you think right, <laughs> right, and to just say like strain and stress sounds so trite compared to probably what you've been through during the pandemic, during the Trump administration. Yeah, I mean, like you know, I the, the general advice I give to other other startup leaders now is really around like, yeah, I, I'm convinced that unless you strike lightning in the bottle with the exact right product in the right industry at the right market time for the, all the rest of us, yeah, startups succeed if you just refuse to refuse to fail for long enough. 
Right. And and yeah, like one of our core values as a company is adapt and evolve because uh, without that we we wouldn't be here today. And it's, it's sort of a, a minimum requirement for you know how we respond in our industry. So you have the Trump administration, which would tweet out policies, you know, Friday evening, so that we have to then work over the weekend to then change all of our forms and um, and our processes. Yeah, you know, we had situations where depending on which state you were from. Your applications could be twice as large as other applications. And and we went through a phase where we had to calculate every asset that a family owns. Wow. And the value of that asset for them. You know, obviously a global pandemic is not the most friendly to a company that's built around helping people migrate and change locations and, and countries. Recently, like we're caught in different policy changes and trying to work with immigration lawyers associations on one end and trying to push the envelope of what's possible from a legal innovation place for another. Like just got approved by the Utah Supreme Court to be one of the first providers to actually be able to spin up our own law firm in the state of Utah and be able to help help families with with legal advice. So there's a lot of elements that we're 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 trying to encounter uh, or trying to 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 you know adapt to to continue to thrive. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. And how do you build that culture of adaptability? I assume that's something you sort of have to hit the ground running with and work with employees from day one to be able to respond quickly to changes. How do you lead lead with that uh, in mind? I, I wish I did this better from day one. Uh, one the nice parts about being a, a first-time entrepreneur is that you get to make all of the mistakes that everyone else has made before you. And the goal is, like, can you learn from them, you know, a little bit quicker each time. I would say that when you first start out, there, there aren't as much of that metrics. And you can go in with, here's the mission. And let's like all try to run like, what are all the different ways that we can solve this mission? And then over time, you have to actually grow a, a sustainable business out of it. Uh, and you'll see that there are certain people that thrive in this environment and others that don't. When we come back, I'll talk with Xiao about what black licorice actually has to do with his philosophy of growing a company. But first, a quick break. You're a growing business, which means you need every spare hour you can find. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. And whatever, we started with a whole different set of four values that I work with their co-founders on in their first couple months of formation. And you realize that actually there are certain people who do really well that exhibit some other sets of values and other people that struggle. And so over time, you actually adapt. And so around year four, as a company, we rewrote our values. And this time, it was grounded in what our team and our organization has already established. And it came from a lot of different cultural leaders and folks that have really stepped up over the last couple of years in the company. And now we've adapted more of a attitude that I like to call like creating a black licorice culture. What I mean by that is, do you like black licorice? A little bit. 
Well, you're the first not, person not I've heard this. Usually it's either oh, I do, yeah. you, you really like it or you think, how is it possible that this product is still on the shelf? And the reason why that's important is that as a startup, we have 200 employees right now. I'm not Amazon. I don't need to hire 2 million people. Mm. All right, but for those 200 people, it is really important that they are truly bought into not only the mission that we're trying to solve, which is very important, but the, the way of operating that can help us achieve that. And so it becomes a lot more important to hire and to be able to identify the right set of cultural and operating principles that work for your organization and not try to say, I'm going to hire and try to attract as many people as possible. Yeah, that's so interesting. Is there anything else that um, that you've sort of either either taken from what you've learned in Silicon Valley or just completely left behind that you've said, this does not work for us, our culture and our company? Every topic, I feel like there's a company that has pushed the envelope on it on both ends. Right? And I think for us, what has been really important is to be vocal and be clear about where we stand on each of these topics. I think where we have gotten into, where things haven't been as effective in the past has been when there's ambiguity. And so more so than like saying, hey, we're the only company that does X, which I don't believe. I think it's more around that, like, let's actually be really clear about what X means for us and what it does not mean. Because I think like everything, whether it's culture, whether it's policies, whether it's the way that we operate, everything has trade-offs. Mm. And it's important to know like which of the trade-offs like truly matter. Yeah, that's interesting. Can you can you give a specific example at all? Yeah. So like I came from Amazon. Mm -hmm. right? Amazon has this uh, value called insist on the highest standards and then there's one around diving deep. Those are great, right? On on the surface you're like, yeah, like why wouldn't a company want those values? I want people to really go into something and I want the team to have really high standards. Well, there's a trade-off there right? because to prepare for a meeting with Jeff Bezos, for example, teams would spend weeks upon weeks like manicuring a single document. Right? And is it really thoughtful? Is it thoughtful? Of course. Right? But is that what we need as an early stage startup? No. And so the idea around like along the spectrum of do you bias for more action versus do you everything needs to meet a certain quality bar, like you do have to make trade-offs there and you can't say you want both. Mm. And so for, for each of our values that we have as a company that we develop, they're not the motivational poster values, right? But they are uh, ones that have been a reflection of you know what we need for a company at our juncture and that they're continually subject to evolve as we change and grow as a company. I love that acknowledgement that action and perfection are sort of incompatible at times. It's, it's, it's really interesting. So tell me, how has it been under the Biden administration in terms of those changes you mentioned that are constantly happening to the immigration system? And what do you think still needs to change? Are there like low-hanging fruits that the government could change to not necessarily ease the process, but make it comprehensible, make it more useful for, for more people? I think the headline would be that uh, people are whelmed by the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. right. 
that there is not the overt set of policy changes that make the process more challenging and more difficult. Like under Trump, uh, passed a rule where it doubled the size of our applications overnight from like 200 pages for a green card application to 400 pages. And the amount of time, as you can imagine, to collect all of those documents and, and, and put together those applications. On the other hand, that despite having a Democratic majority in the House, the Senate, and, and owning the presidency, we're not able to pass any form of immigration reform that has to do with changing how we think about allocating green cards or changing how we approach citizenship or even like changing the H-1B program or, or DACA that actually the majority of Americans agree with. Because again, these are sort of oftentimes band-aid or stopgap solutions that were made decades ago. and. Congress just really couldn't pull together to make any movement there um, in a meaningful way. Moving forward, we are in an unprecedented backlog situation at the government um, due to COVID, due to uh, slow adaptation of technology, such as like what we're using right now to record this podcast, everything required to be in person. And that created a huge backlog and slowing in, in all of the processing across the world, where like right now, you have to wait over a year to get a, a tourist visa to come to the US or to come here for a business trip, if you're from one of the countries that require that. Yeah. So it's like- That's yeah. wild. What did it used to be uh, years ago? A couple of months at worst, yeah. right? Um, and so, yeah, I am working with the government um, on giving them input around like how to build an API. I think that that wow. using technology would be would be huge for them. So if you think of the process right now, we take, get all the information from our customers and then we print out, let's call it 200 pages of, of documents for each application that we do. Then we mail that to the government where in their mailbox facility, they'll take out the application and then feed it into a document scanner, which turns it into a, a giant uh, digital form. And then that digital form is passed to a regional office where it's going to be reviewed. And where placed, the uh, regional officer will then print out the forms because it's easier to review them there for the final adjudication. Now, if you can think along this way between mailing stuff across the country, scanning, printing, unscanning, like, yeah, there are many errant times when pages can get lost, information can be confused, and, and it causes a lot of very significant effects for the individual down the road. And so, you know, imagine if the State Department and Homeland Security can get to where the IRS is and accept e-signatures and an API where we can just directly feed our information to the government, it just cuts down so much on these like efficiencies. And, and luckily, this is something that Congress doesn't need to do, doesn't need to pass. But still, it's because of the entrenched nature and the, the very antiquated foundations of the agency, it's very slow. Wow. I mean, it's 2022. They're still printing out novel-length document packets. Wedding Wild. signatures. You have, to, you have to put a pen yeah, to it, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> no, amazing. It's incredible. And on your, your staff of 200, you said, do you have a culture that skews immigrants itself? And do you make an effort to hire immigrants? Yeah, I, I mean, I think that caring deeply about what we do is an important part around feeling, you know, I talk a lot about purpose and like finding meaning and, and finding a calling in your in what you do every day. And that is a lot easier if you've had to live through this process. So yeah, over over half of our staff and team are you know, immigrants or, or direct descendants of immigrants. And it's something that helps us build better products and experiences for families. And what are you excited about for the future of the company? Well, one of the things is around like, we're here not only to just 
get people through the immigration process in this country. It's like, how do you actually help someone start and thrive in their new life in the new country? And that's why like, I get really excited about programs we launched. Just recently, we created this product where people can pay for their government fees, which can range up to $2,000 in installments for the first time. And we do have a payment plan program. And the reason is a lot of immigrants, they don't have access to credit. And so their alternatives are like payday lending rates or, or worse because, you know, they come from different backgrounds, different countries. And, and it's not that they have bad credit. They really just don't have any credit history in the U.S. and don't have access to that financial system. And so because of our data and our connection with our customers, be able to offer basically no credit check, no collateral opportunities for them to pay large fees over time, uh, which is something that now has helped people be able to start their lives sooner. Because otherwise they would have to, they're caught in this bizarre catch twenty two where they, they, they can't legally work until they apply, but they need to come up with $2,000 to apply. And so they're, they're waiting a long time to get their life started and they're stuck in purgatory for this period. Yeah, 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 that's wild. So let me ask one last question that comes from our editorial assistant, uh, Shintan Tina Wang. She suggested I ask, what is your favorite Chinese proverb? What a great question. <laughs> the one that just like sticks out of my mind is what my parents kept telling me when I, you know, we, were, we were trying to make it in this country. And it's, uh, and it's basically economics 101, which is like objects <laughs> that are rare are expensive. But what is fun about this is you can apply it to anything around time, around energy. And more broadly speaking, it has like the foundation of like one of our company values, which is called focus on impact as a startup. Honestly, the, the most precious thing that we have is is is, is time. Right. And it really comes down to like with this like precious amount of time that you have, whether it's like in a company, whether it's like in life in general, you know, what matters? Right. What really holds meaning and like what, what has the highest impact? And I you know, regularly think that um, when I'm trying to decide either in the past around what I want to do with my career and also now around like where we want to invest in, because like if it, you know, um, yeah, it, like like life is so precious and opportunity is so precious. And it's really about like, where can you say that like you have try to make the world a better place and, and try to, to meaningfully improve the lives of others. Thank you so much, Xiao, for being here today. Thank you, Christine. This is great. After speaking with Xiao, what stuck with me is that from his years in large tech companies like Amazon, he learned precisely what wouldn't lead to fast growth, and that's perfection. Instead of creating a culture of diving deep and working super precisely, he's created a culture of hard work and progress and moving fast. And that, somehow, has led to a nearly perfect 99.9% success rate on working with more than 70,000 individuals on their immigration. Some of that, of course, is the help from data science. But part of it is also human. And that comes from Zhao's own friends and family's experiences that he's learned. He knows there are no do-overs in his line of work. And that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow wherever you are listening. It'll also help you make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. 
And if you can spare a minute, please do leave us a review. You can also let us know what you think about our shows by dropping me a note at whatiknowatinc.com or on Twitter at Legorio. Our producer, who, unlike me, has very strong feelings about black licorice and is getting nauseous just thinking about it, is Joshua Christensen. Our associate producer is Blake Odom, also not a fan. And our editor is Nicholas Torres, who is a hard no on black licorice. Gorio Chaskin, thank you for listening to What I Know. <laughs>